I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters of all types. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews with people dealing with all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Here's today's program. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dynamis.com. Welcome to today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jeff Duchin, Health Officer for Seattle King County Public Health. We'll be talking about the current COVID-19 pandemic and the coming flu season. Welcome, Jeff, to Disaster Zone. Thanks, Eric. Good to be here. Okay, uh, Jeff, you know, I keep track of when I meet everybody, and I met you on April 11th, uh, 2000. I was at an emergency management conference. You were there doing a presentation on the pandemic flu, and it really opened my eyes as an emergency manager that I always thought, well, earthquake is the absolute worst thing we could have, but a pandemic uh, flu like 1918 or you take the COVID-19, which is, has high transmission rates, uh, but is not as deadly as SARS-1 was, um, you know, it, it could be much worse even then. And as we've seen, everybody is vulnerable. It's not just one section of the country, not one, one nation, it's the entire world. So you really opened my eyes. I, I think of you as an expert in this area, as a trained epidemiologist. So great to have you on the show. Um, so we're on the brink of the annual flu season, which will coincide with the ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic. What, what's so significant about this? Well, Eric, um, first of all, this COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented in that um, this novel coronavirus um, is causing significant amount of illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. And uh, we still aren't um, fully aware of what the long-term health consequences may be or the full spectrum of illness. So it's a dangerous bug. And um, it's the first pandemic that we've experienced uh, as humankind in over a hundred years. So very significant event. Um, of course, um, we still have to deal with the prospect of seasonal influenza coming back this fall and winter, which um, traditionally causes uh, thousands and thousands of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths every year. So we're very concerned about the prospect of having even an average, let alone a severe influenza season, compounding the COVID-19 outbreak that's ongoing. Is it the impact to the medical community that's the most significant aspect of the two coinciding? Yes, so let me just back up and say that um, every year, we cannot predict the severity or the duration, onset, or when it might end uh, of the flu season. But uh, this year we're especially concerned because if influenza and COVID-19 circulate together, it would be tremendously stressful to the healthcare system. Just think, in an average influenza season, our healthcare system is really maxed out with um, patients, both in the emergency departments, but also uh, on the wards and in the intensive care units. 
and the combination of influenza and COVID uh, could be overwhelming potentially. So we really um, want to do everything we can to prevent uh, both influenza and COVID-19 coming into the fall and winter season. Okay. So, you know, one of the things I hear repeatedly, and I've blogged a lot at uh, my blog, which is disaster-zone.com, um, over 400 blog posts since COVID started, just on COVID, because there's been so much information out there. And it's changed over time because the science has changed over time. And people, um, they get irritated, the fact that what was true is no longer true and that what the guidance was is now being superseded. Wear, don't wear a mask. Wear, now you wear a mask. Um, who's most likely to get sick? Where's the transmission coming from? How would you, as a trained medical professional, explain this to people? You have to expect those types of changes to happen and why. Yes. So um, we are talking about a virus that was unknown uh, just months ago. It's a newly emerged pathogen from an animal reservoir into the human species. And when these viruses um, become, uh, um, uh, when they emerge like that and they um, become um, human pathogens, we don't have a lot of experience with that pathogen, what it's going to do, how it's going to act, what its natural history is. And so we use the information that's available at the time based on the most closely related viruses we know. So for example, with uh, COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we had information about related viruses such as the SARS-CoV virus, which causes SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, and also the MERS covirus. And so um, we based our initial recommendations on the best information that we had, um, given those other related human pathogens. But over time, as we see how this virus differs, and it does differ in significant ways, um, we change our recommendations accordingly. So for example, the SARS and MERS covirus is spread primarily after patients develop symptoms, which makes it much easier to control from the public health perspective. The uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, spreads very readily from people before they become ill. They may appear well, they may feel well, yet they may be breathing out millions of viruses into the air and that can infect others. So as we learn more, we expect to um, refine and improve uh, the level of information and our corresponding guidance over time. It should be expected with any new pathogen that information will evolve, recommendations will change, and we will have to deal with much uncertainty um, for months to years even. And, and we should expect more new information, even changes to come here in the future. Absolutely, we still don't really fully appreciate the spectrum of illness. Um, there are details about transmission that we still need to learn about the consequences of infection and long-term consequences of infection and about which of our preventive measures are most effective. And of course, we hope to have vaccines and treatments of them becoming available, which will change um, our ability to respond to this virus. Okay, so, you know, one of the best, we actually have a preventative for the flu, and that's a vaccination. So what will a vaccination do for a person and for the broader community? Well, we know that influenza vaccine is safe and effective in preventing influenza infections. 
And that's very good because it will keep people from developing illnesses that could be confused with uh, COVID-19 disease. And you don't want to have um, you know, fever, chills, muscle aches, sore throat, cough, uh, during the COVID outbreak because you will be concerned as well others around you and your public health authorities that you may have COVID-19. You will want to isolate or quarantine yourself or others. And um, we want to minimize um, people having to have um, illnesses that may be mistaken for COVID-19 and lead to those um, steps that need to be taken when someone is suspected to have COVID-19. So there's um, both prevention of confusion with COVID-19, but there's also the health protection that we get from not getting influenza or getting less severe cases, not needing to see a doctor, be hospitalized, or have a severe health outcome. And the influenza vaccine will reduce the risk of all of that. The combination of flu and COVID-19 will um, present a very serious stress on our healthcare system if we have a, uh, even a normal influenza season when hospitals are running near full capacity. So to the extent that we can minimize the number of influenza illnesses, our healthcare system will do be better for all of us and be available to take care of us when we need to uh, be uh, in it for any reason, need hospitalized for COVID-19, for flu, or for any other reason. We want it to be there. And so minimizing the stress on that system by preventing illnesses to the extent possible is critical. Okay, and you mentioned I got this in your response there, but um, sometimes you know that we talk about the efficacy of the flu vaccine, whether they they have to guess where it's going to be and what variety and that type of thing. So um, even if the efficacy of a vaccine is not extremely high, and nothing's a hundred percent. I don't know if you have the percentages for on average of that. Does it still help that the you know you won't be as sick even though it doesn't prevent it? That's right. I mean, flu vaccine is definitely not perfect. It ranges every year in how effective it is on average. It's about 50% uh, effective across all ages in preventing um, influenza infections, but much better level of protection in preventing severe infections that require uh, medical attention, hospitalization, and better in preventing death. So um, even though uh, people may get an influenza illness after becoming vaccinated, it's less likely to be a severe illness that's going to land them in a hospital. And we really want to take advantage of that protection this season. Um, one other thing to note is that the measures that we recommend to prevent COVID-19 um, transmission, which are so critical and bringing a level of COVID down in our community, including decreasing the number of, of um, activities outside the home, uh, contact with others, uh, minimizing um, close contacts, minimizing the duration of contacts with others outside the home, uh, keeping that level of physical distancing of six feet or more uh, whenever in contact outside the home, and using masks whenever in public. Those are very effective in preventing COVID-19 spreading, but also they prevent other respiratory viruses from spreading. So they will also have an impact on influenza. And if we do a good job with our COVID-19 prevention, uh, we'll also expect to see a less severe flu season. So um, we have uh, several tools um, at our disposal this year for flu, both um, vaccine, which is important, and adhering to the COVID-19 prevention guidelines, which will help not only with COVID-19, but also minimize our risk from influenza. Okay. So, you know, some people on a broad base, not just uh, flu, 
and, and uh, vaccines, but the whole childhood mumps, measles, which I thought I had as a kid because we had no vaccines uh, at the time uh, when I was growing up. Um, they read what's on the internet. That becomes their source, what they read on Facebook. And there's this definite anti-vaccine movement that exists. Uh, I have to confess, when I was young and stupid in my 20s and in college, I avoided getting a flu vaccine uh, because I was young and stupid, I think. But I, you know, I personally, my wife and I were, were religious, so I get one every year. And I haven't had the flu in 20, 30 years, I don't know, or more. So it's, it's worked for me. But what do you have to say to those people who don't trust vaccines in general or uh, wonder about the flu vaccine? Yeah, the issue of disinformation and misinformation um, that's widely available on the internet is, is an important one um, for many aspects of our lives. And of course, there's some information out there that's just plain wrong. There's other information out there that is placed there intentionally to create confusion and cause people to be uh, distressed. And um, if you want information about um, influenza vaccine, any vaccine, any medical treatment, um, I strongly encourage people to talk with their own healthcare provider for the most reliable and personalized information for you. Um, there are trustworthy information sites uh, on the web that you can seek out. Sometimes they're hard to discern because some of the disinformation sites have tricky names that try and um, disguise themselves as authoritative sites. But if you go to places around vaccine safety, like the Centers for Disease Control Vaccine Safety website, uh, the Johns Hopkins Vaccine Safety um, website, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Immunization Action Coalition, um, you'll find um, good and in, in trustworthy information. But to be sure and to make, make the information most relevant to you personally, I strongly encourage people to talk with their own healthcare provider. Um, they can both um, explain the relevant uh, safety and effectiveness um, information, but also make sure that a particular uh, vaccine or treatment is in, in fact um, appropriate for any given person. Okay. Well, we're gonna switch gears now and still talk about vaccines, but we're gonna switch to COVID-19. So based on what you know now, and we know guidance changes and reality changes based on the science, what's your expectation for a vaccine for COVID-19? Yeah, Eric, there are over 200 vaccine candidates around the world being evaluated for COVID-19. The um, pace and extent of vaccine development has never been greater because uh, countries around the world are investing millions and millions and millions of dollars in uh, developing vaccines for this disease. Um, I expect that there will be vaccines that will be licensed at some point. There are several that are in um, late stage clinical trials, meaning they're enrolling tens of thousands of uh, subjects now and testing whether or not these vaccines are effective. They is this the stage, stage three, is that? Correct. Yeah, there are two vaccines in the US in, uh, in stage three trials, a third about to enter. There are others um, elsewhere in the world. And these, these, what that means is they've passed the initial um, required stages of um, showing some benefit 
um, showing that they um, were showing that showing that they um, produced some um, likely benefit um, promise of, of uh, protection and have um, uh, sufficiently um, uh, been evaluated to rule out any um, serious safety concerns um, with smaller numbers of um, of subjects, but we need to give these vaccines to tens of thousands of people to make sure that any rare safety issues um, become um, evident before um, considering whether or not they should be recommended to the general public. So, so these vaccines, yeah, go ahead. When you come to the kind of question, we talked about the speed of this. Does fast tracking the development of the vaccine concern you at all from a medical perspective? Well, parts. The fast tracking itself, no, but basically what the fast tracking means is that the manufacturing capacity is being built at the same time as the vaccines are being studied and evaluated. So typically, you know, the, previously the quickest vaccine took four years to get developed and licensed, um, but that's because the studies are done and they're not done you know, in any particular hurry. And after the studies are done, manufacturing capacity then uh, starts to be developed. Governments around the world have um, decided to invest in actually um, building manufacturing capacity um, with the expectation that one or more vaccines will be developed and shown to be safe and effective. And when that happens, they'll be ready to be manufactured and mass produced simultaneously. Um, at this point, there hasn't been any fast tracking that would mean you know shortcut in either uh, the safety or the effectiveness um, parts of that um, process. And what we're hoping is that um, the vaccines will continue to be evaluated according to the standard process to determine whether they're effective and the standard process to determine whether they're safe. Um, if there was any shortcut or fast tracking around safety or effectiveness, that would be extremely concerning. And many organizations have come out and stated that they do not um, support such shortcuts, such as the Infectious Disease Society of America and the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials and other public health organizations. That would be worrisome, and we would not want to see that happen. Okay. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> moving towards the end here, one of the things, as you talked about, there's multiple vaccine candidates, uh, COVID vaccines out there. Will a person be able to say, hey, I want vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine A, and I don't want B? Yeah, how, how will that work? I mean, is it whatever the provider has, that's what you have? You know, it seems like it yeah. could be complicated if you have multiples available in the, to be provided to individuals. Right. So first, I just want to level set here and remind people that we don't yet know if there will be a COVID-19 vaccine licensed or when that will happen. Um, it's unlikely that there will be many um, choices initially. It's likely that one will become available initially and then perhaps others will follow. And um, the, the, the issue of choice, I mean, um, you know, with few licensed vaccines, it's like unlikely that any one provider will have more than one um, vaccine available because there are millions and millions of people who will be needing these vaccines. So they will be uh, most likely 
um, in short supply relative to, to the number of people who could benefit from them. Um, think of it a little bit like under, under the best circumstances like flu vaccine. When you go to your healthcare provider, um, they may offer one type of flu vaccine. They don't give you a menu and say, which one would you like? Or they may have a few flu vaccines that are used for different types of patients. For example, certain formulations of flu vaccine are recommended for people 65 and older. That's um, me. Others are, Sign me right? up. <laughs> yep. And others are recommended for, um, for young children um, and pregnant women could get certain formulations. So um, some of the vaccines may, that, are like, that may come around for COVID-19 may work better in certain populations and they would be you know um, offered to those populations and not others in whom they don't work as well and so on so a lot will depend on what products become available who they've been evaluated in and how well they work okay so and we you, you talked about some of the populations raised really what populations are likely to be the priority group since you know we'll have more people to be vaccinated than there is vaccine so what do you think would be the priority groups to get COVID-19 vaccine first? Is, is it the same as the flu or um, do we know that yet? Uh, we don't know for certain, but there's been a lot of work done around um, stakeholdering with the public and with um, ethicists and um, multiple stakeholders from uh, different um, parts of the community around pandemic vaccination in general. And now we've started to do similar work around COVID-19 vaccine. And um, almost always at the top of the list are healthcare providers because they are um, in a high risk situation um, for acquiring the disease. And they also can spread it to others in hospitals who are very vulnerable. And critical infrastructure workers or essential workers who are needed for critical occupations and businesses and, um, and work to keep our communities going, like um, right. fire, safety, EMS, yeah. uh, police. The telecommunications industry, you know, if, if, right. and if the phones we, don't we, work or the computers absolutely. are out, we're, we're in deep doo-doo. That's a right. technical and so term. Yeah, so those groups are typically um, at the high, uh, high for high priority for initial receipt of vaccine. And then we start looking at people who are at severe risk for death and bad outcomes um, next. So those would be, for example, uh, with COVID-19, it would be people who are older and who have underlying health conditions, um, perhaps, uh, people who live in long-term care facilities and others. And then, of course, our essential workers who have been um, working in many occupations that may not be uh, critical to the functioning of society, but are, are, but are necessary and who um, we have um, deemed essential in our community and others around um, this, the country, such as food production and, and um, so well, on. Our bus, our bus drivers, you know. Bus drivers, exactly. You know, people on the front lines who've been out there working um, and who um, would deserve to have the opportunity to be vaccinated um, early if they choose to do so. And if we and have, have a safe and effect, yeah. And they have a lot of people contact, some of them. Exactly. Well, sure. Jeff, this has been terrific. I think the information provided, people find informative. I'll spread this as wide as I can so that they get this. And maybe later, another four or five months from now or, or so, when we do have a vaccine, have you back on for a quick update with what we know then. And um, 
everyone else. Uh, this brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you to Dr. Jeff Duchin, who's the health officer for Seattle King County. And a reminder to everyone to be safe. Think about how a disaster might impact you and your family and what you can do about it now before that happens. And what you can do now is get a flu shot for yourself and every family member. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's Disaster Zone podcast. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters and what people and organizations are doing about them. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.